are listening to Manufactured with Kim von der Weert and Jessie Lee, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. Join us every week in conversation with the people who manufacture what we wear. This is part two of our conversation with Anand Ahuja and Gauri Sharma of Shahi Exports, one of India's largest garment manufacturers. In the first part of the conversation, we covered their unique origin story, their growth trajectory, their take on supplier leadership within the sustainability agenda, and the innovative social programs the company runs in partnership with Good Business Lab. In this second part of the conversation, we get into some more detail about Shahi's decision to become vertically integrated. Why was this something that made sense for the company, and how has it shaped their ability to test various sustainability initiatives? We then get into their relationship with cotton farmers and chat about why and how they're supporting Indian cotton growers to improve their yield and quality. And of course, it's impossible to talk about cotton these days without also talking about China and the cotton crisis there. Anand and Gauri offer their take on how that's impacting Indian cotton and just how difficult traceability really is. If you are on Instagram, please follow us to help us grow the conversation at manufactured underscore podcast. Or sign up to our weekly newsletter instead on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com to find out what we're reading, what we're thinking, and what we're wishing. If you like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our homepage. And finally, don't forget to leave us a rating on iTunes and hit subscribe. So we've talked quite a bit about your engagement or interaction or relationship with brands and people on one end of the supply chain, as well as sort of your engagement and interaction sort of within Shahi and, and how, you know, the work that you're doing within Shahi to try and catalyze change within the industry. And I want to, I'm curious now to shift to your suppliers and um, I know you have been doing a partnership with uh, HK Rita, working with cotton farmers. And HK Rita is the Hong Kong Research Institute of Textiles and Apparel. If you missed our episodes last week with Edwin Ke, he's the CEO of HK Rita, and we highly recommend going back and checking them out. That's episode 25 and 26. But before we get into that, I can you just give us some context when it comes, I, I'm guessing that one of the main things that you're buying in terms of raw materials is cotton. And, you know, where your who are your key business partners when it comes to cotton? Who are you buying from? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, like you rightly said, uh, one our main suppliers are on the cotton side in terms of the fact that, you know, uh, over 70% of our fabric requirements are actually made in-house in our own textile mills. So um, just... Uh, you know, one thing I wanted to say about that, this whole kind of vertically integrated model, when you look at the cost of a garment, usually in most cases, around half the cost, if not more, can be just the fabric. And Shahi realized that, you know, 10, 12 years ago, and made this investment to set up our own textile mills, 
so that we could have control of that 50% cost. Otherwise, you're having to squeeze everything else to really make make ends meet. Um, and in doing so, we you know definitely overcame a lot of our supply chain uh, challenges. We are still buying cotton. Uh, we're still buying some trims and accessories. Um, and those are, I guess, you know, the majority of our suppliers. One of the other things, I mean, even in my research, when I was talking to buyers and suppliers about circular economy, one thing that came out is that buyers do very much prefer to work with vertically integrated suppliers, not just all the competitive advantage and all the other kind of business aspects of it, but just from an R&D point of view, if they want to experiment with, let's say, producing recycled yarn, um, it's very easy to, it's not very easy, it's much easier to work with a supplier that controls the entire supply chain because they can then, because then there's this one point of contact, communication is much easier. Um, and that's one of the reasons why uh, a lot of, we were working on a lot of circularity projects with our customers is because we can, you know, um, test along the value chain and, and they just have to deal with uh, us and not multiple suppliers. Right. Yeah. It's a lot easier. And that's something we've heard from other suppliers that we've talked to too, that, you know, on the research and development side, being vertically integrated just makes it so much easier to try things out. And speaking directly to cotton, um, the last I checked, you know, we were buying more than 100,000 bales per year. A bale is a measurement. I think it's... um. I don't remember the exact number. Uh, if you're listening, you can look it up. But it's definitely a lot. Um, <laughs> it's a lot of cotton. And we've since gone and looked it up. And a bale of cotton is about 500 pounds or 227 kilos. And most of that we're getting locally. So, you know, over 60% comes from within the state of Karnataka, where most of our operations are. We also source from other states uh, around, um, you know, uh, in in that same region, and then we also import some of our cotton. So uh, around twenty percent or slightly less is imported. Whether it's Supima cotton, which comes from the U.S., Australian cotton, uh, or others, depending on kind of the requirements of of what we're making. And when we source this cotton, we're not actually buying it directly from farmers. Um, in India, you have uh, this sort of system of, you know, many farmers are small holding farmers, small holders, uh, they own very little land. So they produce as much as they can on their land, sell it to ginners or traders, who then gin the cotton, which is kind of where you remove the seeds and, and sort of clean it up. And those ginners often tend to be traders as well. So they'll sell the cotton either to the market or directly to companies like us. Um, so broadly speaking, that's that's kind of how it works. So you're, the cotton is effectively consolidated and ginned, and that's sort of where you enter, where Shahi enters the picture. Yeah, mostly. I mean, you know, at the capacities we're consuming, we don't only have uh, a few people we source from. There's multiple, but at the same time, I think um, there are some larger sources we have but it it really depends on what we're making because you know if the requirement is to make something using organic cotton you need to source it from a specific uh, group mm. or if it's more 
uh, generic, conventional, then then perhaps you know there's more options. So one of the things that we read about when we were doing our research for this conversation, uh, which I mean Jesse and I have been always been at the cut and sew level, so this is this is less familiar territory for us. But what we, one of the things we learned was that. Um, in India, in particular, a lot, I mean, as you said, a lot, most of the cotton farmers are smallholder farmers, and that there's challenges in terms of yield, and that uh, cotton yields, or the yields of cotton farmers in India is low compared to other contexts. Can you tell us a bit about that and why a better cotton quality also, as well as yield, would be strategic for Shahi? Yeah, sure. Um, okay, I'm gonna launch into a small rant, a bit of facts, bit of research okay. that we did ahead of this. Um, we've been studying and, and thinking about this a lot too, though. Um, but essentially, what we've learned through our research um, is that India has uh, the highest area of land under cultivation for cotton, so the most land deployed for cotton cultivation, but at the other side of that, we have the lowest cotton productivity per square acre. Um, you know, for Shahi, we source almost all of our cotton from India. So uh, while having this, you know, being well, with India being such a large producer of cotton, that's great. That That's really an advantage to us. But the fact that productivity is so low is definitely a challenge for, for this part of the supply chain. Um, and eventually for the rest of of you know, the supply chain as well, if there's ever shortages or anything like that. Um, so that's a challenge that we currently face. Um, in addition to the fact that, you know, there's, uh, uh, you know, environment, environmental issues with how it's, how it's grown. It, we, there's not a lot of advanced farming techniques. So water consumption tends to be very high. You know, you're not, seeing a lot of drip irrigation and other sort of techniques that are commonly used. Um, and more than the fact that, you know, this could pose problems for the rest of the supply chain, I think currently everyone uh, should should think about how this is actually affecting Indian farmers today. So there's, you know, if you live in a region and, you know, one season there's a drought or there's not as much rainfall, and you're reliant on rainfall for your um, uh, for, for to grow cotton. Essentially, that can affect your livelihood in that moment. And there has been this unfortunate kind of um, you know uh, situation where um, for cotton farmers and and other farmers here in India, they're under so much pressure to kind of um, you know provide for themselves and their family. And they end up in these situations where one bad harvest, one bad season, or a series of them leads to, you know, basically like not having any any resources, not having any food. Unfortunately, you know, mm -hmm. if you read up about it, you'll find stories about farmer suicides. And what's scary to think is that while this entire supply chain, you know, we talk about the power dynamics and how different people in different parts of it are are benefiting and 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 growing and so on um, at, to different degrees. Of course, I think well, it's pretty clear when you look at some of the data that 
the most kind of marginalized section of the supply chain is at this beginning stage of, of cotton growing. Right. So Shahi has taken some taken on some initiatives that look at improving cotton quality and yield for farmers within India. And could you briefly share a little bit about what what those are? I know they're a little bit technical, but uh, a high level overview. Yeah, I can I can explain that. So um, one of the projects that we've kind of undertaken is with the Hong Kong HK Rita. Um, and basically just elaborating a bit on what Anand said, um, there are two kind of broad challenges we're trying to solve through this project. On the one hand, um, you know, there are smallholder farmers mostly relying on rainfall um, uh, for growing their cotton crops. And because of drought and, you know, um, unpredictable rainfall patterns, they do get um, stressed for water at critical growth stages, um, which again puts them in a really bad position with loss of income, low productivity, low quality, and kind of the debt trap that uh, Anant was referring to earlier. So that's one kind of problem in the fashion industry um, uh, at the cotton stage. On the other hand, we do have a huge amount of textile waste, both uh, at the pre-consumer stage, so at the industrial stage, there's a lot of cutting waste and other waste at the factory level. And then there's also a lot of post-consumer waste, uh, which is, you know, uh, after you've used your garments or at the retail store, there's a lot of um, garments that go to waste. And actually, a lot of these are blended garments, so it would not be single fiber like polyester or cotton. It would be a polyester and cotton blend. And a lot of these textiles are not going back into the system and they're not being recycled. So these are like two big problems, um, challenges that exist. So HK Rita actually came up with a hydrothermal separation technology. So what that technology does is that it's able to separate polyester and cotton blended garments, which I was talking about earlier, uh, which is difficult to do and very few technologies exist that can actually do that. And this uh, hydrothermal technology um, only uses heat, water, and green chemicals. And it's able to recover the polyester fiber in good quality so that it can be spun back into yarn and, and garments. And the cotton that comes out of this technology is converted into powder. And HK Rita has developed that cotton powder into something called a super absorbent polymer, SAP. And the SAP is able to retain um, water and nutrients uh, in the soil. So when used um, in agriculture, SAP um, has water absorbing um, quality and uh, it can also absorb nutrients. And in essence, it's made from cotton, right? So it's a cellulosic SAP. It's not the usual SAP that's available in the market, which is usually made from petrochemicals. So as you can see, um, this is kind of like an eco-friendly option. It's made from waste. It's a great way of using uh, waste and turning it into, into something useful. That was the context uh, of, of what this product is that we're trying to work with. But HK Rita and Shahi have basically partnered to experiment with this SAP in the field to see if um, it could enhance cotton production. So what we did in 2020, actually right before the lockdown, 
um, is that in a small experiment, we tried putting SAP in the soil, so in the roots of the plant and in the soil, in different irrigation systems. So we tried it all the way from an advanced irrigation technique, drip irrigation, to a conventional irrigation system where we mimicked water stress. So if rainfall was um, less um, or there was less water available, so we mimicked that uh, in the experiment as well. And what we basically found is that SAP across all these different irrigation systems, across all replications, um, uh, as the, the cotton crops grown with SAP have much higher yield than those grown without SAP. Um, and we found that the highest difference in this yield, so the highest yield with SAP is actually when there's water stress. So what this kind of you know, made us realize coming back to the challenges I highlighted is that SAP could actually be useful for farmers that are relying on rain-fed farming, which is majority of farmers in India. And it could support them when there's water stress by retaining water and supporting them at the critical growth stages of the plant and ultimately leading to higher yield. We also found that SAP um, in the water stress conditions delivered better quality. So it was a finer fiber than other uh, cotton plants. This is also something we're exploring further, but these are very initial results. And then, like I said, since there's so much textile waste, um, we are able to use some of that cotton textile waste in producing SAP, which can be, again, you know, used to produce cotton. So it's kind of a closed loop system. So that's kind of what we've done so far, but this was a small experiment and it was the results were really promising. So in 2021, we do plan to go deeper into this um, and look at how, um, how, what are the applications of SAP? How should it be applied in rain-fed farming? What's its exact impact? We'll explore different varieties of cotton, like organic cotton, um, and at the same time, exploring how SAP can be made at industrial scale because right now it's it's made at a pre-industrial scale in very small quantities. I'm curious how you think or how you, if you project into the future, how you envision, I mean, if if higher yield and better quality cotton within India is a st of strategic importance to Shahi in the way that you've described, how do you envision sort of a partnership with Indian farmers or growers going forward? I mean, do you expect that at some stage, maybe there would be a more direct relationship? <laughs> no, it's honestly, it's something we have to figure out because at this point, it's about looking at whether this technology works or not. And if it works, how do you use it? How much of it do you use? Where do you apply it? what conditions it works in. So a lot of technical aspects have to be figured out before we're ready to commercialize or distribute it to farmers. However, Shahi does have an agricultural department, which is taking care of this experiment. And we do foresee in the future that if proven successful and validated, this product would be taken to uh, farmers. And how that's done is, again, something that we would properly research, uh, figure out what's the best way of marketing it, training farmers, creating awareness, bringing, building the right linkages, making sure it's offered at the right price, right price point in, compare, in comparison to other products on the market. So there's still a lot of things to be figured out on that side, um, which would be, I guess, after we're done with the experiment, that's what we need to explore. 
Do you think Shahi could ever become a farmer itself? <laughs> Go into growing? I don't see why not. I mean, <laughs> I think like to some extent, yes, because, um, you know, in this case, we're trying to test a technology, demonstrate its effectiveness. But then at, you know, if assuming assuming that this this works and we see, uh, you know, um, value in this product, I don't think that we would ourselves grow the cotton, but I think there would be a really interesting um, series of, you know, probably experiments or research, maybe good business lab would like to get involved in where we're looking at, okay, we've sort of tested the environmental side. Now let's look at the social side. How do you actually, you know, how do you distribute this? How do you train uh, farmers to use it? How do you ensure that you're adding value to for them? And ultimately, I think what Shahi would stand to benefit is having a healthy supply chain. So that's kind of the angle we're looking at it from as opposed to saying, let's vertically integrate all the way down to the cotton farm. Let's see, it's also a way to secure your, your cotton supply, actually. From the higher level, you'll have higher yield and better quality of cotton. From the practical day-to-day -day operation, you would have a much more secured cotton supply comparing with today, small holders, small cotton holders and relying on raindrops. In future, yeah. you would have they rely less on the climate, but more on the technology. Yeah. I mean, aside from, you know, what we talked about, the challenges that a lot of cotton farmers face, uh, what you said makes a lot of sense, Jesse, because, you know, if you have a lot of small holder farms and they're all growing cotton in their own way, it's not very, you know, advanced, the techniques they're using, you can face quality issues just at the level of, you know, the growth stage at what each farm is doing, but then also combining everyone's output into one sort of big bundle that then gets processed, even in that you might have inconsistencies and so on. So there's a lot of challenges, I guess, but um, in general, you know, I think The first priority would be to say, let's secure the health of the supply chain. And through that, the kind of benefits that a firm like Shahi could see are uh, improvements in quality, um, you know, more visibility, more transparency. And, you know, honestly, in the context of everything that's happening in the world today, we're seeing a lot of uh, shift away from, you know, sourcing cotton from China because of the sort of issues that some people have identified with the way, you know, some regions are growing cotton. And I think that issue itself is very complex from what I can understand. But what I, what I think it's leading to is a strong kind of, um, you know, uh, interest in investing in transparency and visibility into all the way down to the cotton, which through a project like this, we could also uh, help ensure. Yeah, and it's interesting. We had a conversation, I don't know, a few weeks ago with somebody who's looking at kind of facilitating direct-to-grower um, transactions between brands and cotton farmers. And it's exactly the same as what you've just described. There's, there's, there's right now traceability with cotton is just practically speaking incredibly difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's that's so. part of the issue with um, cotton coming from China, where there are regions where you know 
brands and, and, and retailers don't want to be associated with sourcing from, but it's not the entire country. But then how do you know if cotton came from this region or a different region? Um, so it's, it's pretty complex. And then you think about the fact that, you know, 30% of the world's cotton is coming from China. Maybe 70% of it is coming from this region that people don't want to source from. But essentially, you have to cancel all of that cotton because there's no, like you said, traceability. And even by canceling all that cotton, couldn't uh, couldn't assure the cotton you eventually sourced is is not originally from that region because there is no right now there is no technology applied uh, to trace down to the like DNA trace. That's right. You know, even a few of our customers have asked us like. Although we source almost all our cotton locally, if if for example the U.S. puts a you know ban on Chinese cotton, and we're shipping goods from India, and then the um, you know imp, like the you know authorities in the U.S. are inspecting the goods, how would we prove that it doesn't have Chinese cotton? There's actually no way to do it. And I guess one one kind of workaround would be if India banned Chinese cotton, then you could say, hey, look, <laughs> it's banned in the country, so you know you can trust us. But beyond that, there isn't a solution yet, at, at least at scale, to do this. Yeah. 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 And that's that's sort of what this person was echoing as well. It's like, well, okay, so one country bans Chinese cotton, but then all these other countries that have mills don't. So then they buy that cotton and then it gets turned into a fabric, which is then technically being imported to say the United States from a, from a third country, not from China. And then, but the cotton is still from China, you know? And so it's, it's, I think it's practically, it's, it's a lot more complicated than, than people maybe imagine or or realize. That's right. It's actually, uh, I see it as an opportunity. Maybe eventually many things will happen from there. People will care more about, I mean, many news will review how cotton have been grown and what are the challenges why why we don't apply that technology or what kind of technology we need and so on and so on. I think many interesting discussions could be triggered. While I I like your take on it, Jesse, I like that you're being very optimistic about what this means, just to kind of play devil's advocate. And to be honest, in some sense, you could look at it as a good thing for India because India is self-reliant when it comes to our supply chain. We, we have cotton we have you know a history of textile production we have a huge labor force so everything exists to kind of do everything within the country and not have to rely on imports whereas you look at you know a country like bangladesh they have a way bigger garment industry than than us despite them being much smaller but they also don't have you know as much of a cotton supply uh what is it uh, like cotton farms they don't have textile mills as much so they're having to import and so on at the same time, I do recognize that this sort of approach to ban cotton from a region, I don't know if a blanket kind of policy works in this case, because yes, I do believe all these reports about the kind of things going on in, in, you know, in, in these places where cotton's being grown in China, but I don't know if that's true for every single place. Like there are, you know, people out there doing good work. And to be generalized as someone who's mm. exploiting and so on could, I, I'm just saying it could be unfair to mm. some of the people who are doing the good work. But at the same time, I think it's not so easy to say, okay, 
we're going to accept cotton from you, but not from you. And, you know, just have that. Technically and to- practically, it's not exactly. possible. Technically and practically. And, and the, the one sentence you said, and then it's quite, it's very interesting. You said, uh, you imagine what if in, in case, uh, in future, if, the only thing can spare India is India government said, okay, we also ban cotton from China. So you can spare us. US can spare us yeah, from that. Yeah. But that's the very interesting question because think about it. What will happen if that policy really applied? What if tomorrow India government said, I mean, after US government clearly issued, we will ban old cotton from China and India government say, yeah, we will also ban uh, the cotton from China. Even India never really import cotton from China, even though, but just to do so, what will happen? It will trigger lots of chain reactions to think about it. It will, so if India doesn't, will not, or will not move that way, Bangladesh will not move that way, we understand why. But if India will not move that way, why? If we think more, maybe we'll understand how complicated the supply chain today is like a network. We put everyone inside so no one can really be out of the network. No one can really say, I don't work with this country or I don't work with that, uh, that thing from that country or that region because it's a, it's a network. It's a networking. That's, that's true. That's true. I mean, you're totally right. Uh, just a side note, kind of interesting fact for those who don't know, India did ban TikTok. So yeah. in their, in their yeah. feud with China, they were able to do a few things. Um, and that was one of them. So I find that pretty interesting. But you're right. I don't think it would be easy to implement a policy like that. And I think trade is 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 highly complex. I don't fully understand it. We did introduce a 10% custom duty on importing cotton, like right now, three days back. Yeah, but that's not the ago, same yeah. as banning it. I was just thinking out loud that um, what Anand said earlier about how 60% of our cotton is sourced from Karnataka. So in essence... The cotton is grown, ginned, uh, turned into uh, yarn, fabric, cut, sewn, packed, washed, everything in the same state. Um, And that is possible in India. That's kind of what Jesse was saying. Yeah. An investment like our, you know, our textile mill in a place called Shimoga, what was so amazing about it is although, you know, uh, it was the right, you know, we look back now and we realize it was the right thinking and there's a lot of good reasons why we did it. One, I don't know if this is, you know, unintended or, you know, it wasn't planned. One kind of consequence of doing it is a reduction in on our impact on the environment. Because now, before we were buying cotton from here, having it ginned here, spinning it here, weaving it here, garmenting it here, and then shipping it out. So like this whole zigzag path that we had to follow is now very self-contained in, in one region in India. So I think that that, you know, from a business point of view, definitely has savings, but also makes more sense in terms of what it means for the environment. Yeah, it's a shorter supply chain. Yeah, exactly. less footprint. Yeah. And it changes, I think, the where like like I think about when we were when I was when we were producing, I were producing in Cambodia. There's no there are no mills in Cambodia. So all the raw materials has to have to be imported. And that as you say, adds extra costs, but it also means that there's less, if you think about your sale price, what you're then selling your your finished good to a, a brand for, then there's more of that. It, it can change the way that that 
that those costs are distributed too. you know, that more of that, more of the costs instead of going to logistics or whatever is then going to, to workers. That's a really good point. Um, I think that's something that I've heard in conversations between Shahi and our customers, where if you have a textile company and then a garment company, and they have to have a transaction to get the fabric and then do all of the processes, um, you know, there's margins on both sides. And because both are integrated, we're saving on that margin and either providing uh, more value to our customers or being able to, uh, you know, make sure we pay workers uh, what they what they deserve and, and you know, handle I, things in a more responsible way. Actually, there is, uh, there is more potential than what you mentioned, like... Uh saving your margins or increasing values or something. It's like uh, you, you will become more flexible comparing yeah. with other. Oh, that's the, that was suppliers. the main motivation, you know, like really being able to control the supply chain, not having supply chain delays, um, you know, uh, quality, all of those things. But I think, you know, the list goes on, but, it, you know, it's been, it's been overall a huge kind of advantage that I think Shahi feels like was the right decision and something they want to, continue to build on. Obviously, we talked a lot about how Shahi is doing all this good work and, you know, doing our best to be a good business. But this all, you know, a lot of the motivation comes from the fact that we're not perfect. We're not near perfect. There's a lot of challenges um, when you have a company at this size or even smaller, whatever size you might be, you're going to face a lot of challenges. And I think, you know, we're just, um, we feel grateful and, 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 and humbled, um, you know, by everything that the company's been able to achieve, but we know there's a long way to go. I think that traditionally, um, you know, garment companies like ours have sort of remained behind the scenes and been comfortable with that. But I don't think it's possible to do that anymore with the way that, you know, consumers want to know about where their clothes are made. But also what I've realized is transparency, it's not just something we want to create for the people asking there's value to transparency for us both on the side of we want the truth to be known so that people don't have the wrong impression of us so they don't stereotype so they don't necessarily generalize but having conversations like this uh you know even when things do go wrong and really you know talking about what happened and and analyzing it gives us a view from the external side that allows us to improve as well. We're really excited about all the potential, you know, opportunities that exist. I think in general, you know, as a young professional, maybe working in the garment industry is not, you know, the most exciting place traditionally, and it's not attracting the most talent. Not cool. <laughs> it's not cool, but... Unless you're a designer. Yeah, unless you're a designer. But I, I <laughs> then it has a glamour yeah, attached to it. But I do think that if you care about labor issues, if you care about the environment, there is a lot of super exciting work to do. And I hope that's one of the takeaways from from this conversation for people listening. Thank you for listening to Manufactured. To learn more about our guests and the issues we've chatted about today, sign up for our weekly newsletter on our website, www.manufacturedpodcast.com, or find us on Instagram at manufactured underscore podcast. We'd also love to hear your stories and what you think. Collecting with listeners is the most rewarding part of what we do, so please don't be shy. To be the first to find out about new episodes, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also love it if you left us a review. Leaving a review helps other people find our show. 
And finally, if you'd like to support us financially, you can make a Patreon donation via our website homepage. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. Thank、you